The following message was given by Dr. Ron Walborn at Refocus 2018, Awaken to the Spirit. Oh, thanks for that last song. Makes me feel really old. I was at the Vineyard Conference when Eddie Espinoza, who wrote that song, introduced it for the first time. In 1987, back before dirt. So back when uh, they had these newfangled contraptions uh, called overhead projectors that they showed the the lyrics of PowerPoint of the 80s. Anyhow, um, it's good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, I was going to ask, is it okay if I put my coffee here? Okay. Um, I always want to be sensitive, you know, because some, you know, times there are cultural things about the communion table. I was over in Paris a few years ago, and I was preaching, and I, I went to set my water down, and I said, Pastor, is it okay if I set my water on the communion table? And he said, oh, it's fine. In, in France, it's fine if you set your water on the communion table so long as it's wine by the end of your sermon. And so when I finished my sermon, I picked up my water and went, Merlot. And it wasn't. It was still water. So um, uh, I want to talk to you for a few minutes. I want to kind of follow up last night um, because we talked about kind of um, developing a God perception, uh, opening our eyes, beginning to see the power and presence of God in greater reality. Um, and, and it's always a little frustrating for me when I go um, you know, someplace for just a weekend because I do 40 hours on, on a course called Divine Healing and I do uh, two 40-hour uh, courses on spiritual formation and so I'm trying to, you know, how do you cram everything you need in, into a weekend? Uh, but there is a piece that I think is very important uh, to this concept uh, and that is we need both a theology of power and a theology of pain, Okay. Um, and and I am I'm very much a, a kingdom theologian. I was heavily heavily impacted by the work of George Ladd from Fuller Seminary. Um, in fact, I was at a dean's conference a few years ago. I ended up at a table with uh, the dean from Reform Seminary and the dean from Westminster and the dean from Covenant, and they all ganged up on me. All these Reformed guys, and they look and they go, "So Walborn, just how Reformed are you?" I said, "Well, it kind of depends on which passage of Scripture I'm teaching from." And they went, "Ooh, you're one of those." I go, yeah, I'm one of those that takes the text a little more seriously my, than my superimposed theology that I put over it. Ooh, anyhow, I got in a big fight, but it was, it was good. We loved each other in Jesus' name. Um, but when you ask me, you know, what, what kind of theology do you, do you ascribe to? I, I really think that the message of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God that has come to earth, was the primary message of Jesus. And, and so I read all of Scripture through the grid of the rule and reign of God has come. Now, the problem is, while the rule and reign of God has come and it's confronting the kingdom of darkness and the fruit of the kingdom of God is expanding everywhere we go, you and I are ambassadors for the kingdom of God. So wherever you go, you carry the rule and reign of a sovereign God. And so when we come into a room, there should be more forgiveness and more grace and more mercy and more love uh, than when we got there. And healing, we're carriers of the healing. That's, that's the fruit of the kingdom. And, and so the kingdom of God is here. But the problem is it's not yet here in its fullness. We're still in a battle. Uh, and the fullness of the kingdom will not be here until Jesus returns. And so as a church, we live in between the times when the kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet here in its fullness. And so there are some churches that focus on theology of power. 
and uh, man, they believe in healing and deliverance and man, you know, and if you need prayer, you want prayer from these people unless you don't get healed because if you don't get healed, you don't have enough faith or there must be sin in your life because they have such a well-developed theology of power, but they've neglected to develop their theology of pain and suffering. And this side of heaven, we need both. Now, to be fair, there's other churches that have well-developed theologies of pain and suffering, and they know how to comfort you while you die. And, and they're good at helping you process things, but there, there's not a lot of theology of power there. And, and so my argument is we need to be people that have both and hold them together. Um, and so this morning, I spent my whole morning grading papers. The papers I graded were grief journals. Okay, now, when I teach spiritual formation, one of the things I teach is on grieving the seasons of your life because every single one of us goes through loss and disappointment and rejection and pain. And, I mean, it's there for all of us. And so I make the argument in, in spiritual formation that grieving should be one of the spiritual disciplines that we ing- embrace as a regular part of our life. And, and you say, what? You're living in a perpetual state of grieving? Well, kind of, but you grieve the losses so that those losses don't own you, so that you can fully embrace your present and your future. And, and so I'm convinced that most of us don't process our disappointments well. Now, I wrote something this morning for you that I, I want to read to you um, on the need for both the theology of power and the theology of pain. Because if you don't have a well-developed theology of pain, you will eventually give up on your theology of power. Because when you, there's too much suffering in this world to neglect a theology of pain. And, and that first person you pray for that isn't healed, you'll say, I'm going to give up. And so you have to have a well-developed theology of grieving so that when you pray for your friend's wife, which I did for three years, my friend Dr. Martin Sanders, who's the head of our doctoral program, his wife got early onset dementia, and it was a vicious disease, and it ate away at her brain. And we prayed for a miracle. We went in every way we knew with our theology of power. But at the same time, we walked with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And sadly, we didn't get the miracle we wanted this side of heaven. Uh, Diana's with the Lord now, and she's obviously completely healed there. But it wasn't what we were shooting for. But in the process, we had to walk him through the pain of that. Okay, And, and if you don't learn how to grieve those disappointments you'll give up on your theology of power. And so uh, just two months after Diana died, Martin and Rob Reamer and I were doing a conference and we were praying for people at the end. And I looked over and here's Martin Sanders two months after his wife's death and he's praying for people to be healed. And people are being touched and people are being healed. And as Martin is praying for them, I just see the tears streaming down his face. And, and he looked at me and he goes, the theology of power and the theology of pain have come together in one moment for me. And as I'm praying and seeing the power of God touching, I'm still grieving the loss of my wife. Brothers and sisters, that's how it needs to be. It's the blending of the theology of power and the theology of pain, okay? So we, we need a theology of pain. Now, we also need a theology of power because the pain of this world will overwhelm us and will slide into despair. 
And so here's the hope. There is power. The king has begun to restore his kingdom. And I believe we're going to see ever-increasing movements of his power as our paradigms begin to change and we realize that our God is present. He's here. Um, But it doesn't mean this side of heaven. We don't need both. We need to grieve as well. So uh, one of the things that I assign is these grief journals. And I've been grading them all morning. And you might think, wow, that's pretty depressing. Um, It is painful. But it's also, I realize the freedom that comes as people get what's on the inside that has been owning them and robbing them and stealing their joy and they bring it into the light of God and they tell me things in these papers they've never brought into the light. And as painful as it is for me to hear and help them process, I also realize it's the key to their freedom. So so this whole concept of grieving, I don't have time to teach on it today, but you have to have both. Does that make sense? I did about two hours of teaching in about 10 minutes, okay? Um, And and so I I just wanted to kind of lay that out um, because, yes, we're talking about power, but this is not some kind of triumphalism or some kind of dominionism. It's, It's with an understanding that the kingdom has come, but it's not yet here in its fullness. We live in between the times. All right? Um, Okay, I want to talk about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And I want to start with a story that comes from my 93-year-old dad. Now, my dad was a pastor, and I grew up going to church, and I probably heard hundreds of my dad's sermons. And I have to tell you, I don't remember too many of them. But you know what I do remember? I remember his stories. I can tell you stories that my dad told to illustrate spiritual truth that have stayed with me for a lifetime. Now, remember that too because we remember the parables and the stories of Jesus as well. And um, and there's something about the power of story. So he he likes to tell this one story, and so I'm telling it in his honor. I was just with him on Tuesday. Um, Which, by the way, if if you're my Facebook friend... um, if, if, if not, I, I have 5,000 close intimate friends on Facebook and I can't add any more. But if I really like you, I'll drop a few losers and add you. So, um, but, um, <laughs> but I posted, uh, I was with my dad on Tuesday night and I said, Dad, I always pray for you. But, I, but Dad, you've prayed for me your whole life. Would you pray for me as I leave? And I said, I want you to lay your hand on me and I want you to bless me. And he goes, okay, but you're going to have to lift my hand. So I lifted his hand and I put it on my shoulder and I listened and I actually taped it as my dad. I videoed my dad praying a prayer of blessing over me um, and it was rich. And so in his honor, here's a story that he used to tell. So he told the story of a man that was desperate for work and he was looking everywhere and he could not find a job. And one day in the paper, he saw that the local zoo was looking for help. And he assumed the worst. If he was going to be working at the zoo, he assumed it would be cleaning out cages and doing the messy work. But he was so desperate, he went to the zoo for an interview. So he gets to the zoo. He meets with the zookeeper. And the zookeeper says, well, this is kind of an odd request, but we are short a gorilla, and we need somebody to be a gorilla. (laughs) And the guy goes, "Uh, okay, well, I've never been a gorilla before, but I'm desperate for work, and if you'll pay me, I'll try it. And so they gave this guy a gorilla suit, and they gave him basic instructions on how to be a gorilla. And he went into the cage, and what he discovered is he was born for this job. 
okay? He was living the dream. He loved it. In fact, he was good at it. He was better at being a gorilla than the real gorillas, okay? And the crowds loved this one gorilla, and he found ways to entertain the crowds that the other gorillas just couldn't even think of. And the crowds began to grow, and this guy became such a popular attraction that uh, they decided to keep him. And so one of the tricks that he would do to amuse the crowd is he would swing on a vine out over the lion's den and he would taunt the lions and the lions would roar and the crowds would scream and and uh and one day when the crowds were at their largest he swung further out over the lion's den than he ever swung and he's taunting the lions and as he's taunting the lions and they're roaring the vine breaks and he falls into the lion's den and the lions begin to circle him And as the lions begin to circle him, he forgets all about being a gorilla, and he begins to yell, help, help, get me out of here. When the largest lion whispered in his ear, shut up, you fool, or we'll both lose our jobs. (laughs) Okay, thanks for laughing at my dad's joke, okay. Um, Now, (laughs) but here's what my dad illustrated with that. Um, No matter how good this guy was at pretending to be a gorilla, you're not a gorilla unless you bear the DNA of a gorilla. And my dad went on to say that there's a lot of people that put on the Christian suit and they act like a Christian and they talk like a Christian and they pretend. But the reality is if there hasn't been an inner work of the Holy Spirit, which we in theology call regeneration, a work of the Holy Spirit, then um, you might pretend to be a Christian, but it's, it's just a facade. Now, research is now backing that up. Barna did a survey a few years ago of Bible-believing evangelical churches. He asked a series of questions about uh, their inner life and their relationship with God and and who Jesus was. And he discerned from this survey uh, that there could be 50% of the people that attend evangelical Bible-believing churches on Sunday morning that have never truly been born again. Uh, They're what we might refer to as nominal Christians wearing the suit kind of Christians. And so I I think it is incredibly important that we spend some time talking about what is the role of the Holy Spirit, what is the inner work that the Holy Spirit does, not only in a believer's life, but I believe the Holy Spirit is active in non-believers as well. And let me show you this. Uh, So let me start with this question. What are the works of the Holy Spirit that take place on the inside of a person that transform them from the inside out? And I want to start with pre-regeneration, prior to the new birth. There is a work of the Holy Spirit that's taking place. And sometimes we Christians don't realize that. In fact, when I was a kid growing up in church, um, you could run in the parking lot, you could run in the fellowship hall, but when you entered the sanctuary, my mom said, the Holy Spirit is in there, so you have to behave yourself. Well, I, So I thought the Holy Spirit lived in the sanctuary because that's where you had to kind of be quiet and you know you couldn't run and you couldn't talk loudly. But the Holy Spirit is active in the world. Look what Jesus said in John 16. I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Now, that's the first thing. Here's these disciples listening, and they're going, how can that be good, Jesus? We love you, and you're leaving? But Jesus understood that the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit, being present with every believer at all times, in all places, was going to be a better system for what he wanted, God wanted to accomplish in the world. So he says, unless I go, the counselor, the paraclete, will not come to you, the one called alongside to comfort. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. Now notice this. When he comes, he's not going to come first to the church in, in order of priority here. Jesus says he's going to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So the, the work of the Holy Spirit is active um, in the lives of non-believers, in the lives of people who have even never heard the gospel. I do training for a group called Adventures in Mission. Uh, they're kind of like the East Coast YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And, and uh, I train a lot of their world racers as they go out to do mission work. And, and I always make this point with them. No matter where you go in the world, if you go into a village where there is no church, where there's been no Christian witness, you need to know the Holy Spirit beat you there. And the Holy Spirit is active. He's working. And, and please remember, often the people who are most antagonistic toward the gospel are the ones that he is convicting the most. Because what does that kind of conviction do in people but stir them up? And initially there might be anger, there might be resistance. And so, you know, I, I always tell my students, when you sense antagonism to the gospel, don't let it irritate you. Well, first of all, they are not the enemy they're victims of the enemy and they're often the people in whom the Holy Spirit is stirring and so let it bring on the anointing oh father you're doing something here you're preparing this person and we're hearing stories after story of how Muslims and and non-Christians are having encounters with the Holy Spirit Jesus is being revealed to them long before they hear a Christian witness so the Holy Spirit is active in the world now the second part of this is I believe the Spirit is also drawing people to Christ. Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, you may be saying, well, there it says it's the Father doing the drawing, but I believe the drawing agent of the Father is the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is actively drawing people, convicting them, preparing them, in essence doing the work of John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for the gospel and then drawing him to himself. Um, years ago, I heard a prayer that I stole from somebody. I can't remember who I stole it from, which means it's mine. Um, in academics, we say the only thing that's original is that which you forgot where you got it from. So this is my prayer and you may feel free to steal it. But here's the prayer. When I am someplace um, in public, I will often pray, Father, Holy Spirit, Show me who you're preparing to receive the things of your kingdom. Who are you drawing? Who are you convicting? Who are you working on? And, and so one time I was out in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. I was skiing with a group of young adults from our church and my wife. And I got separated from the rest of the group. And I was standing in this lift line awaiting uh, to go up in this lift chair up the mountain to ski down the mountain. And, and, uh, and it was a long line. And so I'm kind of bored. There's no one to talk to. So I start praying this prayer. Holy Spirit, who are you preparing? Who are you working on? Who are you convicting? Who are you preparing to receive the things of the kingdom? And uh, up ahead of me, about four or five people, was a young man. And this young man was drunk. He was inebriated. He was cursing. He was swearing. Uh, he was using vulgar language. And, um, and I couldn't help but notice him. And as I'm praying this prayer, the Lord speaks to me and says, Him. I've prepared him to receive the things of my kingdom. And I immediately started to argue with God. Oh, God, listen to what that guy's saying about you. 
he's not ready. Now, this, this guy's not ready. You know, I'm, I'm getting into this argument with the Lord. But I could not shake it that this guy, the Holy Spirit was working in him. And so, um, and then I said, Lord, besides there's four or five people between us, it would be awkward. Uh, there's no way I can have a conversation with him. Well, just when I said that, he cut loose with a string of vulgarities that were so offensive, the people in between us dropped out of line after waiting for like 40 minutes. And so next thing I know, I'm standing next to this guy. And now I'm trying to stir up the courage, you know, to uh, address him. And before I could say anything, the lift chair operator goes, Next! And the two of us end up on this flimsy lift chair that's going to go really, really high, which, by the way, is not a safe place to witness to a cursing drunk person. And so I'm like, oh, okay, at, le- at least I could have done it while I'm on the ground. Now I'm up in the air. And so I breathe the prayer for my own protection, and I turn to him, and I said, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? <laughs> With absolutely no anointing at all, Okay. <laughs> Just obedience, okay? Do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? He looks at me in shock, and he goes, how did you know? Okay, there's an open door. Okay, all right. He didn't throw me off the lift chair. Um, Well, I was praying, and the Lord told me that he's been preparing you to receive the things of God. What are you waiting for? Now he starts crying. He tells me the story. He's dating a preacher's daughter. She was missionary dating. I'm not recommending it. <laughs> Although my daughters did it a few times and we had to pray really hard. Um, and, and she had told him that morning that unless he repented and turned to Jesus, she was done. And he was so angry, he got drunk to spite her. And he goes, but now a stranger comes up to me and says that God is preparing me. I can't deny God is after me. I'm going to stop running. I need him. Well, now I'm getting ready to pray, lead him through the salvation prayer. And all of a sudden the Lord speaks to me and says, he's not yours to harvest, which really ticked me off because I'm the one that took the risk. I deserve that notch in my Bible, you know? And uh, I, I said, all right, where's your girlfriend? And he said, she's at the top of the mountain. So when we get to the top of the mountain, he introduces me. We tell her what happened. She's weeping. He's weeping. And when I ski off that mountain, the two of them are kneeling there in the snow, and he's receiving Christ, okay? Now, what method of evangelism, what program evangelism is that? I'm all for learning evangelism explosion and the four spiritual laws and the Roman road. I think we need to equip ourselves well. But don't ever forget, friends, that the Holy Spirit is the agent drawing people to Christ. And no matter what model or program we use, we're going to be far more effective if we are consciously and, and, and intentionally saying wherever we are, Holy Spirit, who are you preparing? Who are you convicting? Who are you working in? Who are you drawing into the presence of God to receive the things of your kingdom? And, uh, and so the first thing I, I, I want to note is that he is active prior to, to regeneration. Well, then uh, the Holy Spirit in conversion at the moment of regeneration, I don't think we talk enough about what is the Holy Spirit doing at the moment that person kneels, says, I am a sinner. Uh, I receive the atoning work of Christ. I receive the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. I put my faith in the Lord. What happens? And, and the Holy Spirit is the agent 
through which God works regeneration. Now, a very familiar passage is found in John chapter 3, where this is where we get the word regeneration, the concept of the new birth. And you know this story. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who, came, who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. And in re- reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. Now, remember what we talked about last night. It's not, oh, at some future realm. No, no, no. The minute you come to faith in Jesus, you become a perceiver of the kingdom. You begin to see the rule and reign of God, the presence of God. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, the undivided, the unencumbered, for they will perceive God in the present moment. We begin to see the rule and reign and what he's doing and his fruit. And and Jesus is saying that to him. You're never going to perceive it. You're never going to realize it. Your paradigm's never going to shift until a new birth happens in you. And Nicodemus responds, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, I think Jesus probably had two responses to that. One's recorded a little bit later in the passage. The other response is not recorded. I think the first response was Jesus going, ew, it's um, pretty gross, Nick. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, do you ever read scripture? You just kind of read over it, but that's nasty. And uh, but Jesus does say to him, wait a minute, you're one of Israel's teachers? And you don't get this concept of the new birth? Because it was taught clearly in, in the Old Testament that there was coming a day when a new heart and a new spirit, we'll look at this in a minute. And so Jesus is kind of amazed at the lack of insight that one of Israel's teachers is exhibiting here. And he goes on and he explains it. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Now, you'll notice that uh, the translators correctly capitalize that first occurrence of spirit because it's a reference to the Holy Spirit giving birth. And he goes on and says, for flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to the human spirit within us. Okay? So for the purposes of illustration, let me use this old uh, body, soul, and spirit. And I'm not trying to make more of it. This isn't about trichotomy, dichotomy. Don't get too theological with me. It's just for the purposes of kind of understanding what's going on here. If your body is your sense consciousness, it's what you, you know, see and taste and Uh, touch and your soul is your self-consciousness your mind your will your emotions your spirit is your god consciousness and and that is what was marred or lost at the fall you know when god said if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will surely die there wasn't an instant physical death there wasn't a soul death but there was a spiritual death and sin destroyed that intimacy that communion with god and, and so that's where the initial death took place. Now, I don't have time to teach on it, but sin was not content just to infect the spirit of man. It went out and affected the way we think and our emotions and our bodies. And so sickness is a corrupt fruit of the fall and, and our, the lies we believe. It, there's this cloud of sin that permeates everything. And, and when we come to faith in Christ, when there's a new birth, I wish that the cloud of sin was completely taken care of, 
But our mind and our will and our emotions and our bodies are still subject to the residue of that, which is the whole concept of sanctification and healing and growth in Christ and renewing our minds. And we'll talk more on that later. And so, in essence, this is what Ezekiel mentioned. God, through Ezekiel, prophesies and says, look, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to bring to life that part of you that can have intimacy and communion with God, and I'm going to remove from you your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And, you know, Adam and Eve didn't do such a good job with just a spiritual sensitivity, so I'm going to go one step further. That Holy Spirit, I'm going to leave to indwell you, and He's going to fill you. So from the moment of your new birth, friends, you not only have a spirit man or a spirit woman that has come to life within you, but the living, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is in every believer. Here's why I'm saying that. Because in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about, uh, people call it different things, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the coming upon empowerment uh, for ministry and, and empowerment for sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in that. But what's happened with our Pentecostal brothers and sisters is they've said, well, you might be saved, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. Well, that's not true. Romans 8 says, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, then Christ be not in him. You see, the Spirit of God is the agent of your regeneration. That's what gives you the new birth and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is here. Now, I I will say this, and then I'll touch on this more. How many of you have heard it was said that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people? for ministry, to be a king, to be a prophet. But in the New Testament, the Spirit indwells people. But what's kind of inferred by that is he doesn't do the coming upon anymore. And I think that's where we make the mistake because yes, he indwells us. He brings to life our spirit so that we can have intimacy and communion with God and he indwells us. He is there, but I think he also comes upon us for ministry and power just like he did in the Old Covenant, and we'll address that more in a minute. Let me tell you a story about this new birth thing, though. Um, I was teaching homiletics a few years ago at Nyack College, undergrad, and uh, that's preaching. And I had a young man in my class named Matt, and Matt was a junior pastoral ministry major. His father was a United Methodist pastor. His grandfather had been a Methodist pastor, and now Matt was going to be the third-generation pastor-preacher in his family. And so Matt is taking homiletics, preaching from me. And uh, we're about three or four weeks into the semester, and Matt preaches his first sermon. And it was terrible. It was really, really bad. And so when he finishes, I'm like, okay, Matt, let's get together outside of class. And so I met with Matt in my office, and I worked on his structure, and I worked on his hermeneutics and his homiletics structure. And all. I, you know, I, I tried to work with him. And about three weeks after that, he preaches his second sermon it was worse than the first. I'm thinking the family business is in danger. Maybe God's calling you to be a mime for Jesus, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was just, uh, you know. I go, all right, Matt, let's, let's meet again. So I, I bring him to my office, and we start to talk, and, and I start in on his structure, and he goes, wait, wait, Ron, I think there's something deeper going on here. I go, what? He goes, well, you know, I'm listening to these other guys preach. And it's like they know Jesus. I'm like, yeah. He goes, no, no, no. 
I know about Jesus. And the truth is, I know the scriptures better than all of them. And he did. He was very, very bright. But he said, I think I'm missing something. And so on a napkin in my office, I drew this little diagram and I talked about the fall and the effect of the fall and, and how what the new birth was, the, was promised by God through Ezekiel. And, and I didn't even get to the New Testament, to John 3. And Matt is weeping and he says, that has never happened to me. He said, I have a relationship with the facts of Christianity, uh, but I don't have that. I need my spirit brought to life within me. I have never heard the gospel like that. And in my office, in his junior year at a Christian college, this pastoral ministry major said, Jesus, by your spirit, would you bring my spirit to life? I need you. I'm a sinner and I need to experience the new birth. And regeneration happened. Now his third sermon was a lot better. You preach much better once you get saved, seriously. <laughs> changes everything, okay? And, um, and, and just so you know, I shamelessly tried to recruit this young guy uh, to my denomination because we grow our denomination the old-fashioned way. We have babies and we steal sheep. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, no. He said, Ron, he said, I am committed to being a Methodist pastor for this reason. No young person is ever going to grow up in my church and not know the gospel. And, uh, and Matt is a free Methodist missionary to Japan and I've stayed in touch with him over the years, and he is a gospel witness to the power of the Holy Spirit to bring life in Christ. Now, there's many ways of presenting the gospel. I guess what I'm saying is, let's make sure that in our preaching and in our teaching and our communication, we don't neglect the inner work of the Holy Spirit in this process of salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, from there, um, the Holy Spirit... It becomes your guide, becomes your convictor. Jesus said that he's going to guide you into truth. He's going to speak what is not his own. He's going to speak what he hears. He'll tell you what is yet to come. In other words, the Holy Spirit is able to give us prophetic insight by his grace, by his mercy. He also, one of the ways you know you're a Christian is you can no longer get away with sin. Now, we still sin, but when we do, the Spirit begins to convict, begins to guide, begins to call us. Um, in fact, we know from Hebrews that the Father disciplines those He loves. Well, the primary way He disciplines is the inner working of the Holy Spirit won't let, let you get away with it. I mean, how many of you, you're in a conversation and you say something you shouldn't say. Maybe you're harsh, maybe you gossip, and you're walking away and, and all of a sudden the Spirit begins to convict. Listen, I have learned to love that. Because it's the affirmation that I belong to Him. It's the affirmation that I have the living presence of the Spirit of God within me. I'm no longer just a human. My life has been made alive in my spirit. So I have this communion with Him and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit continues to convict, continue to speak, continues to guide. Okay, and, and so this ongoing speaking God is within us. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, my sheep, they're going to hear my voice because it's the Spirit of Christ that is speaking to us by his indwelling presence. Now, let me go to this next section. Um, for the rest of our time, are you guys doing okay? Do you need a break yet? Okay. You guys are tough, right? Chicago people, we can sit for three hours. We don't need a break, okay? 
New York people are like that too. California people, they need a break after 20 minutes, okay? Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I'm going to talk for the rest of this, uh, this, this talk about two dynamics of the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about sanctification and I want to talk about empowerment, okay? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit setting us apart, freeing us not just from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And, and then I'm going to talk about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember I said earlier, there's, there's churches that emphasize theology of power and churches that emphasize theology of pain. I think the same thing happens with sanctification and empowerment. There are some churches that are much more comfortable talking about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the work of holiness, the work of him setting us apart so that we are freed from the power of sin and holiness and character becomes a priority. And that's a wonderful doctrine. That's kind of the stream that I've grown up in. The Christian and Missionary Alliance was heavily influenced by the holiness movement. And so sanctification uh, is one of our key doctrines. Jesus, our Savior, sanctifier, healer, and coming King. Um, but in, in the process, we've reacted against the Pentecostals and the people that emphasize empowerment. And I think we have a bit of a blind spot in terms of power, okay? Now, the other side is there's a whole segment of the church, they love the power of the Holy Spirit, but they may have neglected the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, there's a Pentecostal denomination called the Foursquare. Any of you ever heard of the Foursquare? I was at a conference a few years ago, and the Foursquare was started by Amy Simple McPherson, uh, a revivalist, and, um, and, and she came up with the Foursquare gospel. Again, very original, creative. I have no idea where she got it from. Just kidding. Because here's the Foursquare gospel. Jesus, our Savior, baptizer, healer, and coming king. She stole that from A.B. Simpson. But what she did was she replaced, she was like, oh, those CMA people, they're all into this holiness sanctification stuff. They need the power. And so she replaced sanctification with baptizer. Okay? Now, I'm having this conversation a few years ago with a four-square theologian, and he says to me, you know, we ought to get our denominations together. I said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing because we could use a dose of power. And he goes, yeah, and we could use a dose of holiness and sanctification. I said, yeah, let's get us together. Let's call it the five square. <laughs> it doesn't work geometrically, but I tell you what it does. It works theologically and it works biblically because friends, I don't believe it's either or I believe it's both and. Okay. Now my theory on this, what I'm operating from is that the rest of this outline is not necessarily sequential in this chronological order. So I'm going to talk about sanctification first and then empowerment. But I believe it may be possible for people to encounter the power of the Holy Spirit and not get good teaching on sanctification. And so they experience power, they experience the gifts, but they don't know how to treat one another. And my example from Scripture would be the Corinthian church. It was lots of gifts and lots of power, but they weren't nice to one another and they were arrogant. They called themselves the pneumaticos, the spiritual ones, and it was pride. And, and so Paul's kind of writing 1 Corinthians to correct that and say, yeah, I want the gifts, I want the power, but let him do the work of holiness too, sanctification, okay? 
And so I, I think it's also possible that people encounter the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and miss the power. But I think it's also possible to experience them both together. Sadly, I think much of the church is experiencing neither. They think that salvation is the pinnacle and the end. And let me tell you something, folks. Your salvation is just the doorway into the things of God. And if you stop at salvation, if your baptism, like churches make such a big deal out of baptism services. And I, I like, you like baptism services? It's awesome, right? But if your baptism is the pinnacle of your Christian experience, there's something wrong. Because, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, God's got more for you. And so your salvation is the doorway into what our denomination, our founder, A.B. Simpson, called the deeper life. And I think there are depths and heights in the presence of God and by His Spirit that He wants us to experience. And, uh, and I, I think much of the church is often experiencing neither. And I think it's not either or. I think it's both and. Okay? Now the other thing I want to add to this, and I, I kind of mentioned this in passing last night, is I believe we need to be careful systematizing our experiences with God. Okay, So for instance, the Pentecostals have done this, what I call systematizing with tongues. Okay, So a little historical theology lesson. When Azusa Street hit, it was the revival in 1906 that launched the Pentecostal movement. For whatever reason, when God was touching people in that revival, tongues was coming forth. And, and so out of that revival came this kind of a systematic view, theology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit where they coined what they call the initial physical evidence doctrine. And it, and it says this, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the initial physical evidence of that empowerment will always be tongues. And so here's where my movement, the CMA, and kind of the, the people that A.B. Simpson hung out with kind of moved away from the Pentecostals because A.B. Simpson said, no, we believe in the empowerment, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in tongues. We believe all the gifts are for today. But we're uncomfortable making any one gift the evidence. And, and so I think what happened is they systematized their experience and what God was doing in that moment and they kind of mandated that that's what has to happen every time. And that's where the CMA kind of moved away from the Pentecostals. Now, listen, I love Pentecostals. I have more in common with them than I have in opposition. And I know there's been abuse. I get that. So evangelical friends, listen to me. The answer to abuse is not disuse but right use. We've got to grow in this. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that's often what we've done. Okay, so I picked on the Pentecostals. Uh, let me pick on the Christian and Missionary Alliance for a minute, my denomination. We, we emphasize sanctification, and we don't call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in fact, we're even uncomfortable with, in some ways, the filling of the Holy Spirit. We call it the crisis experience with the Holy Spirit. And so when I was a young man in college... I was getting ready to go through my licensing interview with these group of Christian and Missionary Alliance pastors. And so I'm getting my theology ready for this interview. And I'm, I remember I'm in the dorm and I'm talking about 
what I'm going to use as my crisis experience with the Holy Spirit. And so I'm describing, and one of the students, guys that was there with me said, no, that's not going to work. I go, what do you mean it's not going to work? No, 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 that sounds too much like a Pentecostal. I go, well, that's what happened. He goes, no, 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 that's not, it's got to look like this and you need to use this language. Well, see, my denomination in reaction to the Pentecostals had kind of systematized what sanctification has to look like. And so I'm sitting there in the dorm going, I don't think I've had this happen to me yet. So in preparation for my interview to get into the denomination, I made up a crisis experience that fit the language they wanted to hear. I lied about it. Now, you're like, and they let you in? Yeah, they did, because I gave the right theological answer. Now, relax, I had the crisis later. God got me, and it involved repentance for lying to the ordination license committee. But again, part of it was, I think when the Holy Spirit touches us, it always looks different. And when we try to systematize it, that's where we run into trouble. And so for years, the Christian Missionary Alliance had a statement on tongues, and it was called, Seek Not, Forbid Not. And here's the essence of it. Don't search after tongues, but if it happens, don't forbid it. But it, it became very negative, and it was kind of seek not, forbid not, but you better not, Okay. In fact, one time on a test, I asked, what is the alliance position on tongues? And one of my students put, don't ask, don't tell, (laughs) which was the military policy on homosexuality for a while. I thought, well, that's creative. I'll give them credit. Um, (laughs) But but a few years ago, um, on the board of directors, we said, you know what? That policy is not serving us well. And so we came up with a new document, which I wrote on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the title of this document, and, and I'll make it available to you. I told Pastor Steve, it's on the Alliance website. It's a, a little brochure. And, and here's the position. When it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we should have expectation that God can do anything he wants to do, but we should not have an agenda as to what it's going to look like. You see, because sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes upon people, he comes with tongues of fire like a mighty rushing wind. It's like a, you know, a Shibata Honda moment, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, and we're under the spout where the glory pours out and it's wow. But sometimes when he comes, it's like a gentle dove and a quiet whisper. And when we have an agenda as to what it's going to look like, we miss him in the moment when he comes. Let me give you another example. Um, one of my dear friends at Nyack and Alliance Theological Seminary Um, is Dr. Frank Chan. Um, Frank is a Wheaton grad, went to Trinity for his MDiv, went to Westminster for his PhD in New Testament, brilliant guy. And when he came to Nyack, he got filled with the Holy Spirit, encountered God in a a very powerful way, and became a, a man hungry for revival. And Frank's Chinese, grew up in New York, and, uh, and Frank, uh, calls me one night. And he goes, Ron, revival's breaking out at a church in North Jersey. We got to go. I go, okay. He goes, I'll pick you up at six. And so he comes and he picks me up and we drive to North Jersey to this church where revival is breaking out because he's hungry for God. There's more, we want more of God. You know, I mean, there's nothing more dangerous than a PhD in New Testament that's on fire to get filled. You know, it's, he, he was crazy. Um, and then he could back it up. Um, it was really good. But so he comes, picks me up. We drive to this church. And as we're pulling into this church, I see the sign, and the sign's in Korean. 
I go, hey, Frank, this is a Korean church. He goes, yeah, I know. I go, is there going to be interpretation? Because neither one of us speak Korean. He goes, I don't know, I don't know, but God's here. Revival's here. I'm like, all right. So we go into this church. There's 500 Koreans. Everything's in Korean. It's a first-gen church, okay? No interpretation. All the worship's in Korean. The preaching's in Korean. I'm sitting in the back like, Frank, let's go. He goes, no, there's going to be prayer time. God, God speaks English, so, you know. <laughs> so, I, you know, I sit through. This service is like two hours long, you know. You guys have long services, right? Yeah. So, uh, and I'm sitting there, and finally we could tell they were going to do a prayer, time, prayer line, okay? So they line up everyone in the front, and so I go up with Frank. I mean, at least he looks like he fits in. I, I'm the only white man out of 500 people, and at the time I weighed about 300 pounds, so I'm a big white man at the time. And I'm standing there, and I look, and they start at one end, and they're praying for people, and everyone's falling over. And they're catching them, you know, covering them with blankets, you know, and, uh, and they're coming down. And, and I'm like, okay. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm open. I've, I've had that happen where it was real, okay? So I'm like, okay, Lord. I did look to see who was going to catch me because I, I didn't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> Give me a big guy, all right? And uh, so I'm standing there, and they get to me, and they start to pray for me. And they pray for a few minutes, and they were nice. They prayed in English, so I understood what they were praying. And after a few minutes, they started pushing me. And I start pushing back. Because now I'm getting ticked. All right, if I go down, I want it to be God. I don't want you pushing me down, all right? So now I'm pushing. And the guy behind me is touching me in wildly inappropriate ways, you know, just to let me know I'm back here. I can catch you. I can catch you. It's like, you know, I mean, it's just it's a friendly church. Um, and, and I'm just kind of standing there, and I'm, I'm, I, now I'm getting ticked. And, and my face is expressing that I'm not happy, you know, and I'm kind of pushing and they're pushing. You see, they had an agenda. At some point in their history, God met them, people went over, and now every year when they have revival, if people don't fall over, God didn't show up. And, and what I would suggest to you, and let me use the example of Jesus. Did you ever notice that Jesus almost never heals anyone the same way twice? And I think it's because he doesn't want us to develop some kind of a methodology that we worship. He wants us to let God be God. And so they're pushing me, and I'm, finally they give up on the stiff-necked white man, and they move to Frank, okay, my Chinese friend. And they start to pray with Frank, and Frank's about like 5'6". He's short. And within a minute or two, he goes down. And so they move on, and I kneel down, and I go, Hey, Frank! Frank! <laughs> Frank opens up his eyes. Yes. And I go, so you went down, huh? And he goes, well, not really, but I knew I was going to develop a bad attitude and lose my joy, so I did a courtesy fall. <laughs> I go, a courtesy fall? Is that legal? He goes, I don't know, but I'm having a good time with God, so just leave me alone. So I, I you know, he's obviously much holier, more sanctified than I am. Um, but here's my point. It's funny but we should not have to do courtesy falls. See, I think that's that statement. Let's have expectancy that God can do anything he wants to do, but let's not have an agenda as to what it's going to look like. Because sometimes it might be this manifestation of his presence, and sometimes it just might be tears on the cheek. And no matter how he comes, he is able to accomplish what he needs to do within us.
And so that's kind of the expectation without agenda uh, uh, statement. Now, so let's talk about sanctification, okay? Sanctification, and this kind of comes from the Christian Missionary Alliance statement. Uh, It's a a paraphrase of it. There comes a point in every believer's life after salvation, subsequent to salvation, when the Holy Spirit calls him or her to a deeper level of consecration, commitment, and surrender. And, And when we say yes to this moment, when we say yes to this call, the Spirit of God does a work within us to bring us to a new level of experiential holiness being set apart in every area of our lives. This work is both crisis. In other words, there's moments when God encounters us and everything changes. It's just like uh, he takes us to a new level. And so there are crisis moments in this process. where, And I don't think it's just one. I, I think there can be multiple crisis moments. But then there's also progressive that we're, you know, three steps forward and two steps back. And, and, and you may not even notice, but a year in you go, I am not yet where I want to be, but I am further ahead than I was. You know, I'm, I'm moving on in, in the sanctification growth process. And so when the Alliance talks about sanctification, it's that setting apart for the purpose of God. Now, here's the danger. The danger is that we turn sanctification into works righteousness. And this is what happened to me in the holiness movement and in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. In fact, I was taught, I don't know whether it was taught this uh, verbally, uh, blatantly, but here's what I picked up in my childhood and in my teen years, that salvation was God's gift to me, but sanctification was my gift to God. That me being a good Christian, obeying all the right rules, saying no to all the bad stuff, that was my gift to God. And I got to tell you, that is heresy. And it is destructive. And I do a teaching, which we don't have time to do it, on bounded set versus centered set. And, and it's really my testimony of how God set me free from the spirit of religion and self-righteousness and introduced me to what real sanctification is all about. And so when it, when it comes to sanctification, there's a couple key passages I want to look at. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 was actually A.B. Simpson's favorite passage on sanctification. It says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And so the first thing I want you to notice here is that it's God doing the work of your sanctification. And, and just so you don't miss it, Paul says it twice. May, may God himself, and in case you missed that, God, he's the one that does the work of sanctification. He's the one that's going to cleanse you. He's the one that's going to set you apart. He's the one that's going to set you free. It's God at work in you. And and see, I grew up with such legalism that my sanctification was me working, me striving, me being good, me behaving, me keeping the rules. It just about killed me. I I mean, for instance, um, when I was growing up, if you were a good Christian, you did not go to movies, okay? And I remember when I was 14, I snuck to my first movie, and um, I told my mom I was going miniature golfing with the church kids, and I went to see... um, in fact, I still remember, I went to see Richard Pryor, Greased Lightning. 
yeah, I figured I'm going to go big or go home. You know, why start sitting with Disney? I'm going to go see Richard Pryor, you know. And, uh, the, but the problem is I forgot about the ticket stub in my pocket. And my mom found that ticket stub the next day when she did the laundry. And it was, you know. Uh, you know, what's amazing is that that week our church rented that same theater for a Billy Graham film. I think it was like Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place or something. And, and so we're going into the theater that Friday night as a church. And I said, hey, Ma, I thought it was a sin to go in here. She said, not tonight it isn't, but tomorrow it will be, okay? And so there were these things that if, if you were um, a Christian, you didn't do these things. But it wasn't based on an inner work of the Holy Spirit. It was based on a bounded set of, of, of rules and regulations. Now, again, some of the things that the bounded set comes up with are really good and they should spring from the inner work of God. But when you get the cart before the horse, it makes all the difference in the world. I'll give you another example. My grandfather left our denomination when the Christian and Missionary Alliance went liberal. And his definition of liberal was his Alliance pastor got a TV. And he did not believe that you could have a TV and be a Christian. Well, we had a TV. So when grandpa would come to visit, my mom and dad would cover our TV with a sheet and put flowers on it. You know, this was before flat screen, obviously, you know. And, uh, and, and that was an end table. And I couldn't watch TV the whole time grandpa was there. And I remember saying to them, he knows what's under the sheet. He knows you're liberal, okay? But no, no, shh, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. And, and so I, I got so frustrated one day, I crawled under the sheet and turned the TV on. And my mom went nuts, get out of there. I go, no, 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 it's a magic sheet. He doesn't know I'm here either. You know, it's just, it's fine. Put a flower on my head or something, you know. You know, why? Because when you're living with a self-produced sanctification system, you find ways around all the rules. And you live a secret life that is not healthy. And so it's, it's very important that you notice it's God doing the work. Second, notice that in his prayer, his prayer is that your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. That someone else is doing the keeping. I mean, you know, when I first began to see this, I went, oh God, thank you that you are the agent of my sanctification. You are the one that's going to keep me. You are the one that's going to preserve me. When my daughter was eight, she came to me. Her name's Karis. And she came up and she goes, Dad, I'm worried about something. I go, what are you worried about? She goes, well, Dad, you know I sin a lot. I go, I know you take after your mom. And, uh, and she rolled her eyes. She goes, no, Dad, I take after you. And, and she said, um, no, I'm just worried, Dad. What if when I get to heaven, I sin and start a second fall? This is an eight-year-old. I don't get that kind of question in seminary, Okay. She's worried about being the second Eve because she knows how much she sins. And I'm like, oh, how do I answer this one? And I looked at her and I said, honey, if God's grace is enough to get you there, God's grace is enough to keep you there. And she went, oh, and she walked off. And I'm like, okay, dodged a bullet on that one. Okay. But it's true. It's he is the one. And notice that the last verse here, he is the one. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And so the freeing truth of sanctification for me was this. It is all about Jesus and his performance. It is not my self-effort. Now immediately some of you may say, well, what is our role? And our role very simply is to surrender. Is to say, yes, Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit right now 
is actively pointing his light at places in your life. And he's saying, I want that. You belong to me. And it's not legalism. It's, it's that prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of the fish where he cries out and he says, I now see that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That when the Holy Spirit is doing that work of sanctification, he points that light to that specific area. He says, I want your finances. I want it. Surrender, surrender, surrender. And here's the hard thing. What the Holy Spirit is doing in me is almost never what he's doing in my friends. And so what I do is I start to systematize the work of the Holy Spirit and say, well, the Holy Spirit is convicting me and he should convict you too. Okay? And that's when we move from expectation to an agenda in our sanctification process. Okay? So it's about Jesus and his performance, not our self-effort. I put this on Facebook um, a few years ago. And I actually shared, shared it with David Fitch. David Fitch is an author, author. I was with him last night after the service. And if this shows up in one of his books, I want you to testify for me that it's mine, not his, okay? If he steals it. Um, but I, I shared this with him last night. I, I, I wrote this on Facebook last year. When a parent becomes the consequences of a teenager's sin, the child will run from the parent and embrace the sin. Now, pause there for a minute. Don't read ahead. Here's what I mean by that. When we have teenagers, often when we catch them in a sin, our anger and our consequences are worse than the consequence of the sin. And what that produces in them is a desire to hide, and they often run from the parent and run to the sin. And so as I go on, and, and, and I learned this the hard way by having four teenagers at the same time, okay? But when we allow sin to be its own consequence... We become, and we become a place of grace, the child will eventually, the key word there is eventually, okay, will eventually run from the sin and embrace the parent. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that we don't need to train up a child in the way they should go. I, I'm not saying that. But there comes a point where we have to trust that sin really does have consequences. And that as much as we hate for our kids to experience it, we have to become the place of mercy and grace. Here's why. Because prodigals will never return to control. They will only return to compassion. And, and I've experienced that with my own kids who all four went prodigal. And I had to come to a place where I stopped fighting the battle for behavior. Remember last night's story about the golfer. And I had to learn how to fight the battle for their heart. Because if you're constantly focused on behavior and the consequence, the consequence, the consequence they will not return to that. They'll only return to mercy and grace. Now, let's apply it to the church. Likewise, when the church is viewed as the inflictor of punishment for sin, instead of a place of mercy, people will run from the church and embrace their sin. But when we allow sin to be its own consequence, and we choose to be a place of mercy and grace, people will once again run to the church and abandon the sin, which alone carries the wages of death in this life and the next. Philip Yancey uh, a few years ago, wrote the book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in that book, he said, why is it that the people who were drawn to Jesus are repelled by the church? And I think this is one of the key issues. We become the inflictor of punishment for sin rather than the place of mercy and grace. And it's because we don't really believe that sin has consequences. We think we can't let them do it or they're going to enjoy it. And they might. But let me tell you something. Sin will always pay its wage. 
And so we've got to learn to be the place of mercy and grace. And again, it's connected with this issue of sanctification. One last passage on sanctification, and then we'll take a short break before we move to empowerment. 2 Corinthians 3. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now pause there for a minute. If you read prior to this, he says that when the old covenant is read, it's like a veil covers their faces. It's like a numbness that comes over people. And it's kind of a reference in a reverse way to when Moses comes out of the glory, they say, put a veil over your face. They could not, they didn't want to come into the presence of God's glory because of their sin. Well, now that Jesus has borne the penalty for our sin, we can come into God's presence without fear and we can remove the veil. Okay, there's no more hiding. We don't have to run from the presence of God because of our sin. We can run to the presence of God. Okay, and and so Paul is saying that New Testament Christianity stands in stark contrast to the bounded set nature of Judaism where we hide our sins, where we cover, where we avoid the presence of God. No, because of the atoning work of Christ, we can come into his presence and we can walk in the light. To walk in the light does not mean to walk in perfection, but it means to walk in a place of unhiddenness. Now here's what happens. When a church becomes a place where we can be who we really are, where we can be honest about our struggles, then the people of God come into the presence of His glory. Now the Lord is a Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces doesn't mean perfect faces, but unveiled faces, we begin to reflect and meditate upon His glory, upon His presence, and that's where we get transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, uh, to summarize this, true holiness, true sanctification, is not us cleaning up our act It is the recognition that we are utterly powerless to clean up our act, forcing us to come to Christ in complete brokenness. Where we come into his presence and say, I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to veil. That's what religion does. No, no, no. No more. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to come into your presence. Brokenness, sin. I don't have to fear anymore because Jesus has borne that. And I come into your presence and in your glory, that's where sanctification, that's where true holiness begins to be manifest within me. And it works its way from the inside out. It's not behavior modification, it's transformation from the inside out. That makes sense? Okay. And, um, and so with that, let me pause just a second. And we're going to move on to empowerment. Before I do empowerment, I want to give you a bit of stretch and a bathroom break because I want your full attention when we move to this next section. Anyhow. All right. um, Empowerment. Let's talk about empowerment here for a minute. Now, I want to stretch you a little bit here because, uh, in fact, I was was just mentioning to Mitch here, my buddy, but you guys know Mitch Kim? Say hi, Mitch. Mitch, uh, this is Dr. Mitch Kim. Um, I've tried to steal him from Chicago for many, many years, and he refuses to move to the East Coast. He's a a New Testament guy, um, and he's taught a few classes for us, and he's a pastor. What's the name of your church? Wellspring, okay. Um, but anyhow, I was, I was telling Mitch that uh, pneumatology uh, has to begin with Christology. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Christology is the study of Jesus, okay, the person of Jesus. 
And when you talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is intimately connected to Christology, to the incarnation of Jesus. Okay, now uh, I want to show you this in Luke 4. This is right after Jesus has been baptized, right after the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, right after his father said, uh, this is my beloved son on whom my favor rests, on whom I'm well pleased, which, you know, here's a point you can take away from that. Jesus got the affirmation from his father, the approval from his father before he had done any ministry at all. And so his ministry came from approval, not for approval, which is how we're to do our ministry, not to earn God's approval. He has already spoken it over us. You're the son, you're the daughter of God, and we live out of that already received approval. Um, But he did no ministry until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And, And so in Luke 4, it says this, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, now, what does that have to do with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Um, Folks, for most of the 20th century, our apologetics, our defense of the faith, was very focused on defending the deity of Christ. And rightfully so. He was fully God and fully man. That's the incarnation. Fully God, 100% God, and and fully man, 100% human, both. Two natures in one person. That's the incarnation, okay? And during the 20th century, we were defending the divinity of Christ. But we spent so much time defending the divinity of Christ that I feel like we neglected the humanity of Christ, we didn't understand that uh, hypostatic union. We didn't understand the connection. And, and I still think there's a lot of work that needs to be done uh, in, in the academy on that issue. But, but I have believed for a long time that Jesus did not do his ministry out of his divinity. In Philippians, we're told that he laid aside his divine nature. Well, what does that mean? Um, while he was omnipresent as God, he chose to limit that omnipresence by living in a human body. While he was omnipotent as God, while still retaining his full divinity, he took on the form of a baby and the weakness of a child. And so there's a a willing to lay aside, uh, in essence, the attributes. Again, fully God could have taken it up at any moment, but he chose to live as a spirit-anointed man. And he chose to model ministry to his disciples and to us as a spirit-anointed man. And so um, a few years ago as I was studying this, I I realized, in fact, A.B. Simpson was one of the first ones to kind of show it to me. He, He says that Jesus did not do his ministry in the strength and power of his deity, but in the strength and power of his spirit-anointed humanity. So that when he said to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. If he had done his ministry in his divinity, they could have gone, come on, Jesus, you're God. What chance do we have to preach the kingdom and heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead? But if Jesus did that ministry in his spirit-anointed humanity, if 
His ministry was a demonstration of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Then what Jesus did, we can do also. Now, let me press you a little further on that theologically. I, I think we rightfully hold up the cross as a key moment in the life of Jesus. But I think we neglect the temptation narrative. You see, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, that was a key moment in his qualification as the second Adam. Do you remember the first temptation? If you really are the Son of God, you could turn these stones to bread. Okay? I think in that moment, Satan realized is if Jesus lives a sinlessly perfect life as the second Adam, that's what qualifies him to go to the cross to pay for your sins and mine. But if I can get him to shift into his divinity, he disqualifies himself as the second Adam. So Jesus had to resist the enemy and defeat the enemy in the strength and anointing of his spirit-anointed humanity, quoting the scripture like you and I quote the scripture, using the power of the Holy Spirit like you and I use the power of the Holy Spirit so that he could go to the cross to pay for your sins and mine. Okay, and, and, and I think we neglect that. Tony Evans, the, the black preacher, he puts it this way. I, I can't do it like he says. He says, just as the enemy visited the first Adam in the garden, tricked him and got him thrown into the wilderness, so the second Adam visited the enemy in the wilderness, defeated him so that we could be led back into the garden. And that, that in essence, that, that temptation narrative is incredibly important because I, I think what Satan was going after was to try to undermine the plan of God to have a man live a sinlessly perfect life and then go to the cross. Now, it's not just that, but I believe that when Jesus does his ministry, he does his ministry in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think there's prophetic gifts. I think there's healing gifts. I think there's this teaching anointing. Um, he is a man surrendered to the empowerment of the Holy, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I normally take, again, this is one of my frustrations with having just a, a brief moment with you because I usually take two hours on that topic. And when I first learned this, it blew my mind because I had studied apologetics during the 20th century like the rest of you, and, and we used the argument Jesus was God because he did miracles. Um, but we never thought it out to say, wait a minute, when the next disciples do miracles, that doesn't mean they're God. It simply attests to the message they carry that the Spirit of God is upon us. Okay? Now here's what this means. Let me press you again further. This means that what Jesus did, we can do also. And they, we are without excuse. Okay? And in fact, I believe that the commission of Jesus to the first disciples to preach the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, is the commission on we, the disciple of the Lord, the church today. And, uh, and, and we are to do everything he has commanded us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. So with that said, when we talk about empowerment, you have to ask, well, when does this experience take place? And again, uh, you know, most of us been, have been taught that when we get saved, the Spirit is the agent of regeneration. The Spirit indwells us, but that's all there is. We, in fact, some people will say, your salvation moment, your conversion moment is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And if you're saved, don't expect anything more. I would say to you, I don't believe that. 
I believe God has more for you. Now, do you have the Holy Spirit if you are saved? Absolutely. You can't be saved without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and He indwells every believer. But I also believe there is the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit for sanctification and empowerment both. Okay? So when does this happen? I believe it's after salvation. I don't think it has to be long after salvation. In in a few minutes, I'm going to give you a a testimony from... um, Charles Finney. Finney got saved in the morning. Somebody taught him about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the afternoon, and he experienced an empowerment of the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation on the same day of his salvation. And so I don't necessarily think it needs to be long in time away, but I believe that there is something more. In John chapter 20, verse 22, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great reformed English pastor, pointed this out to me in a book that he wrote called Joy Unspeakable. Excellent book on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says that in John 20, we have the initiation of the church age. Okay? In John 20, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to the disciples and he says this, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, said, Receive the Holy Spirit, And if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What Martin Lloyd-Jones says is this. We have been taught that Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, is the initiation of the church age. And that what happened in Acts chapter 2 never has to happen again. That is the moment that the new covenant church is born. Lloyd-Jones disagrees with that. He thinks that John 20 when Jesus breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit, is the moment that the church age is born. And the parallel passage to John 20 is Matthew 28. Go into all the world and be my witnesses to all nations. Okay? That that's the initiation of the church age. Well, then, what is Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2, and I agree with this, is the first empowerment of the church. But it's not the last. It's the first empowerment of the church. So uh, again, I I want you to hear what I'm teaching. At your salvation, it is in essence Jesus breathing on you like he does in John 20 and say, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit births your spirit within you. The Spirit indwells you. But in addition to that, the Holy Spirit wants to come upon you for empowerment and for sanctification. In other words, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning in a 30-minute sermon. You're, going to, you're getting the expanded version. Tomorrow morning is just going to be the shortened version. And the title of the sermon is this, God's Got More for You. Don't ever grow content in a past experience alone. God has more. God has more. Keep moving in. Okay. So John 20 is the initiation of the church age. Well then, Acts 2 is the first empowerment of the church. And, and what I would say here is, is that I had been taught that every Christian has Acts 2. Friends, I have to tell you, every Christian does not have this Acts chapter 2 empowerment. If they did, the church would be in much better shape than it is. So now here's where I'm going to push you a little bit, evangelicals. I think many of us are not living with the expectancy that the Spirit of God wants to come upon us and empower us for mission. Okay? And, I, and I'm going to push you on that further. 
Okay, um, in Acts one, now this is several weeks after Jesus in John twenty has said, "Breathe on them," said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." Now in Acts one, he shows up and he says, "Do not leave Jerusalem." But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And here's the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. You're going to be witnesses. It's not just to make you feel good. It's not just to make you flop and drop. It's just to make you experience manifestations. No, no, no. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I I, want to let you in on a fictionalized conversation. This is me using my sanctified imagination that occurred between Peter and John in Acts chapter 1. Okay, here's in my imagination, here's what happens. Jesus says to them, hey guys, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I think they're sitting there and I think Peter leans over to John and he goes, hey John, so what happened in John 20? Not yet. I know there was no John 20 yet, okay? Um, And uh, in fact, do you know know which gospel writer wrote last? Anybody know? Mitch, you know which, which gospel writer wrote last? John. Do you know why John was the last to write his gospel? So that he could refer to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. (laughs) Because if the rest of them had still been alive, then he wrote about himself that way. He just said, he loved us too, John, okay? Um, But he waited till they were all dead so he could call himself the disciple who Jesus loved and get no flack from them. Okay, so, so Peter turns to John. He goes, what happened when, when Jesus, remember he breathed on us? And now he's saying, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And, and I'm going to refer to this again tomorrow morning. I think John says, you know what? I don't have this all figured out theologically. That's why I'm going to wait about 40 years before I write my gospel. Um, but I think what Jesus is saying is, don't grow content in a past experience, but keep leaning in because God's got more for us. God's got more for us. And there is an empowerment that is coming that we need for this next stage. Now, friends, listen to me. I don't think it's just a one times Acts chapter 2 empowerment. Because some of the same disciples that got filled, baptized in Acts 2, experienced it again in Acts chapter 4. You see, I think we need to be filled and refilled and filled again. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones put this this way. The reason I need to be filled again and again by the power of the Holy Spirit is because I leak. And the truth is I'm supposed to leak. I'm supposed to leak out His presence, His power, His love, His grace, His healing upon everybody that I come into contact with. And so I've got to have the expectancy that this is not just a one-time experience. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place and suddenly the sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I love this passage and and I probably shouldn't say it like this, but I kind of have a love-hate relationship with this passage. It's not hate. Hate's too strong a word. Because what happens is this is the Shazam wowie moment. And and when we think about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, this is what we think of. 
But my argument to you is this. That's what it looked like in Acts chapter 2. And sometimes it may look like that again. But sometimes it looks like the Spirit coming like a dove on Jesus' shoulder. And so don't let this be the litmus test for whether the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, let me give you a practical example. See, because I think some of you have experienced the coming upon of the Holy Spirit and don't even realize it. Um, When I was a kid, uh, my dad would say things like when we were on our way home from church, and I can remember I'd be in the back seat, and my dad would be up front, and he'd be driving home, and he'd say, Oh, it was really tough sledding today in that sermon. Uh, Man, it felt like I was wading through oatmeal for the first 10 minutes. And I'm in the back. I'm like, it all felt like oatmeal to me, you know. And and, and he gave me a dirty look, you know. And he goes, but then he would say, but then the Spirit came. And my words began to flow. And God is so faithful to come with his anointing. Now, what is my dad talking about? He's talking about the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit. If you guys have ever taught or preached, you know what it's like to, you're starting and you feel like your words are going, and you're like, come, Holy Spirit, I need you. And then all of a sudden the words stop, and again, human analogy falls short. They stop going from here out and they start to flow from here out. Or when you pray, Some of you have experienced this in prayer. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, when I pray, I start in the flesh and I end in the spirit. Now, he didn't mean he started in his carnality. He meant he doesn't wait for the Holy Spirit to anoint him to be obedient. He gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. And it might be hard initially, but how many of you know what it's like to pray and all of a sudden the words stop coming just from here out and they come from here out? See, I I think we need both. Paul says I need to pray with my mind and my spirit. And praying in the spirit is not just praying in tongues. It's praying with the spirit within you, anointed by the Holy Spirit, giving you words. How many of you have been witnessing to somebody or talking with a friend and all of a sudden the Lord begins to give you insight and you begin to say things to them and you go, wow, I am so much smarter than I thought. (laughs) The bad news is you're really not. The good news is the Holy Spirit loves to come upon his people and give them what they need in the moment. It's the coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me give you one other example of this. Um, at my church in New York, we have three services on Sunday morning. And the pastor's one of my best friends in the whole world. I, I love him. He's like a brother to me. But I, I'm going to tell you a little, and I have his permission to tell this story on him. So he gets a little long-winded in the third service. And the reason is he knows there's no fourth service coming, okay? So what my family does is we always go to the second service because he knows the third service is coming. And especially in the fall of the year, that's important because if you go to the 1130 service, he gets long-winded and there's no way you're making kickoff, okay? I know that's an idol. I get it, okay? Um, And so we always go to the second service. Well, this one Sunday, I couldn't get my family going, and we did not make the second service, and we ended up at the 1130 service. And so I confess, I went to church with a bad attitude. And I'm standing there, and I'm ticked. 
and worship is going on and I'm, I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, oh man, I'm going to miss the kickoff and the Steelers are playing the Bengals today and I wanted to see the opening drive and I'm going to miss it. And so I just have a really bad attitude and I have my hands in my pocket and I'm chewing gum and I'm just, I'm just, I just have a bad attitude. And then the worship leader gets all anointed and he's repeating verses, you know, I could sing of your love forever and ever and ever and ever, you know, and it's just end it, will you? And so I, I'm just, I'm not good. And so I'm standing there and all of a sudden I look over at my wife and Wanda always senses the presence of God before I do. I, her God senses better. And, and I look at her and she's got her hands out and the tears are streaming down her face. And I look over at my daughter and the presence of the Lord is all over Karis, my daughter, and she's just trembling in God's presence. And I go, oh, Lord, you're here. You're here. I'm so sorry. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes because I believe that every time the body of Christ gets together, it's an opportunity for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit of God to dip his toe in the waters of your worship and inhabit the praise of his people. Now, folks, listen. I think it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit. One of the ways we do that is, when is this service going to be over? But could it be that when a tipping point of God's people throw their hands up and say, come Holy Spirit, we welcome you, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is his presence coming upon his people. And no, it's not always going to look like Acts chapter 2, but I think when we get sensitive to the dove anointing, to the quiet whisper, to his presence in tears, we set ourselves up for the Acts chapter 2 moments better. Does that make sense? And so don't let this kind of be the standard, but, but I, I want to expand your understanding about what this empowerment, this coming upon of the Holy Spirit looks like when you are in his presence and in his glory, have an expectancy without an agenda. Okay? Now, and I'll go through this quickly. Um, this is not limited to a one-time experience, there's to be an ongoing expectancy that the Holy Spirit wants to fill and refill the believer again and again in an ongoing way. That's what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, okay? And, and so um, Acts 4, some of the same disciples, after they prayed, the place where they were shaken uh, was, was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, some of the same people. The Spirit comes upon them, and this time there's not tongues, but they speak boldly. And so again, you see multiple evidences arising when the Spirit comes upon people. Uh, Acts 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them, yes, speaking in tongues, but also praise is erupting. And so one of the evidence is that the Spirit had come upon him was praise. Uh, Acts 13, the disciples were filled with joy and again, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the joy is the evidence. Okay? Uh, another example is Acts 8. I love this one. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now again, these are Christians. These are believers. Okay? And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Pause. Theology quiz here. 
Did these new believers have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit? Yes, they did. Okay? But Peter and James, the disciples, knew that conversion was not the end, that there was more. And so they prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. One last passage. Uh, In Acts 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. They were evangelicals, okay? Um, Now, (laughs) but listen, when he asked that question, I don't think it's a regeneration question, okay? I think it's an empowerment. I think it's a God's got more for you question. And so uh, when it comes to this, how do we describe this experience? Some call it the baptism of the Spirit. Some call it the filling of the Spirit. E.M. Bounds called it the unction. I like that one. You can't function without the unction, okay? Uh, Some call it the anointing. Some call it the spirit-filled life. Uh, As I said, my denomination calls it the crisis experience. My suggestion is call it whatever you want so long as you don't live without it. So long as you're living with the tangible reality of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. And, And what are the results? Will there be evidence in my life when the Spirit of God comes upon me? Listen to me. Yes. I just don't think it's limited to one gift. And so I think intimacy with God, love beyond reason, joy unspeakable, indescribable peace, zeal for holiness, boldness in evangelism, spiritual power and authority, yes, release of spiritual gifts, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. There should be evidence. And A.W. Tozer puts it this way. I've never met a man, and I would add or woman, who has been filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. Okay. Now, you may not know exactly what it was, but even as I described to you what the coming upon of the Holy Spirit can feel like in your life, some of you went, oh, that's what that was. Because the Holy Spirit wants to come upon all his children and empower them for the mission of God. All right, now, I want to tell you a story. So in 1986, back before some of you were born, um, my wife and I were getting ready to go into ministry. We were going to start our first church in Connecticut. And we were at a Bible camp, a Christian camp in Pennsylvania called Mahaffey. And uh, Mahaffey's the church camp that I grew up at and uh, as a kid. And we were back there visiting, and it was a, uh, a weeknight. And at the tabernacle, there was a man preaching, and he preached on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he invited us. This is a Christian Missionary Alliance camp. This is part of the camp that emphasizes the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, but not the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Decidedly very non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic, non-power, but it's, he wants to come upon you for holiness. Okay? And so he invited people to come forward, and I grabbed Wanda's hand, my wife, And I said, honey, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't start ministry. In fact, I literally made up my crisis experience to get licensed, so we got to get something here. And so so we go up to the front. We kneel at the altar. This guy comes over to us. He says, what do you need? I said, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he prays for us. He says, in Jesus' name, uh, uh, fill them with the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
And it was a very, very simple prayer, maybe 30 seconds. And then he starts walking away. And I go, hey, where are you going? He goes, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. I go, are you sure? He goes, yep. I go, is she filled too? And he goes, yep. You receive it by faith. You won't feel anything. Now, do you understand that this was a man living in reaction to when the Holy Spirit comes, you'll speak in tongues. And he was living in reaction by saying, no, 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 there's no evidence. Uh, You receive it by faith. Now, please hear me. You do receive the things of God by faith. But I don't think you should say you have it until you know in your spirit that he has done it. You know, the, the old timers used to talk about praying through until you know the answer came. And I think there's something to that. But in his reaction, he said, yep, you're filled. Well, the next day, my wife and I got in a huge argument. And in the middle of this argument, I looked at her and I said, nothing happened to you last night. And she gave it right back at me. She goes, nothing happened to you either. I go, I know, I know. And we we were so frustrated. That was in July of 86. But here's what that did do. It created a hunger in us. God, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And we began to hunger. God, and, and we began. I read every book I could find on the filling of the Holy Spirit. I read this one book on how to be filled, and it said you have to get rid of all known sin. You have to fast. You have to pray. You have to read the Scriptures. You have to memorize the Scripture. You have to do this. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do all this stuff. <laughs> in fact, you know what? I, I've come to believe that there's one, one prerequisite, one thing you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's desperation. Blessed are those who hunger, hunger. And I think if you can live without more, you will live without more. But if you get to the place where you say, God, I can't go on. If, if you don't give me more of yourself, if you don't give me more of your presence and your power, I can't do this. And through the fall of 1986, I was doing ministry. We were seeing movement in this church. People were coming. But by the end of 1986 in December, I said to my wife, if there's not more, I'm done. I'm quitting. I'm leaving. And you're kind of getting the expanded story. I'm going to tell this in abbreviated form tomorrow morning. And, uh, and in February of 87, I told you that my, my elders sent me to this conference And it was a conference called Signs and Wonders in the Kingdom of God. But the emphasis was on the present-day work of the Holy Spirit. And and so I went to this conference. And I told you last night I saw the healing happen on Tuesday of the tumor. But on Monday night, when they gave an invitation, I ran to the front. Because I knew that there was something that God had that I had not yet received or actualized. See, again, let me put it this way. We do receive the things of God by faith. But don't say you have it until you know you have it. So for instance, uh, you know, you may know some people that are in the health, wealth, the name it, claim it movement. And how many of you have seen they're sick and their nose is running, they have a fever and they're going, I'm healed in Jesus' name, you know. I name it and I claim it. And I'm like, okay, name it and claim it over there so you don't give it to me. Because you, you may be naming it and claiming it, but I think you're still contagious, okay? So claim it that way, all right? And all I'm saying is, Yes, we do receive the things of God by faith, but don't be satisfied until you know you've received what he's promised. Continue to press in. And so I was pressing in from July of 86 until February, and every night I went forward. 
and I, and I went up to the front and at this church, they had ministry team people that had badges that said ministry team member. And the guy I got was named Joe. His name was Joe Langford. And he was a construction worker who had been trained to be part of their ministry team. Do you guys have ministry teams here? Okay, so he's on the ministry team. He's got a badge that says, I've been trained. You can trust me, right? Okay, so he comes up to me and he looks at me and he goes, well, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the father? And I went, yep, I'm ready. And he went, nah, you're not ready. He goes, why don't you come back tomorrow? I'll pray for you tomorrow. And he walks over and starts to pray for the next person. I'm like, well, I don't know who trained you, okay? So I, I go back to my seat. Next night, I go up forward. I go, I, I go up to the front. Joe comes walking up to me. Are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? I go, yeah, I'm ready. He goes, nah, you're not ready. Come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll pray for you tomorrow. But this time I'm like, well, do something. Pray for me to get ready, okay? Give me something here. You're the ministry team. You're not ministering to me. Uh, I'm ready to punch you, okay? And, which proves I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, so that happens Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. He doesn't pray for me. I go forward every night. He goes, you're not ready. Keep pressing in. Come back tomorrow. I'll pray for you tomorrow maybe. Every night. Come back tomorrow. So Friday night, it's the last night of the conference. I am flying back to Connecticut. This conference is in California on Saturday. And, and John Wimber was the guy that was preaching. And he said, there are pastors here. You're ready to give up. You're so desperate for God that if he doesn't meet you in a fresh way, you, you're going to quit. And you're the ones I want to pray for tonight. Come forward. And man, I ran to that front. And I was praying, oh God, send me anybody but Joe Langford, okay? <laughs> Literally, I'm hiding behind people so this guy wouldn't find me. You know, give me somebody else, okay? I need a new ministry team person. Sure enough, he finds me. Friends, this was February of 1987. 31 years ago, last month. It's my anniversary. I remember it every year. He got to me that Friday night and he looked at me and he goes, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And that night I went to say yes and I just broke. I can still feel it 31 years later. I just broke. I just started to sob. Now I don't know what he saw. But see, we don't serve a microwave God. God will take his time to get us ready. You know, we we want everything instant. And sometimes I I don't think we're sensitive to what God's doing. But that night I broke and he went, ah, you're ready. And he put his arms around me. Now, what I'm about to share with you is descriptive, not prescriptive. Please understand that phrase. You're going to hear that from me a lot of you. If you take classes from me, I'll say say that all the time because I'm describing what it looked like when he met me, but it is not a prescription for what it will look like for you. Does that make sense? But for me in that moment, it was like he pulled the top of my head off and it was like the love of God just began to flood into me. Just love, love, love. And I had doubted and questioned the existence of God, but in that moment, he sealed me with his spirit. I didn't fall over. I didn't speak in tongues. I I went back and forth between tears and laughter, tears and laughter. I just stood there for an hour just under the spout where the glory pours out. And when I went back from that conference, I got off the plane. Wanda didn't go with me to that conference. And I got off the plane and she looked at me and she goes, what happened to you? She saw something. And I looked, I got filled with the Holy Spirit. And she goes, do we believe in that? I go, we do now. 
She goes, well, that's what I've always wanted too. I said, okay, we're going back to California this summer. There's another conference. We thought God lived in California because <laughs> there just wasn't much happening in Connecticut, you know. It was pretty dry and thirsty land. And, and that summer, Wanda and I went back to California. And Joe and his wife, Sue, got behind us. Joe got behind me. Sue got behind Wanda. And they prayed for a baptism of the Holy Spirit on our marriage. Now, some of you are going, where's that in the Bible? Well, let me tell you something. I'll tell you what's not in the Bible. It's individualized experiences of the baptism. If you look at Scripture, it's the Spirit coming upon churches, upon groups. So why can't we expect Him to fill and baptize our marriage? And why can't this whole church and this whole region say, bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the churches in Chicago? Light this place up. Why can't we ask for a a baptism over regions and groups and family units? Um, I think that's as biblical as asking for individual moments in His presence. And so, uh, again, descriptive, not prescriptive, but it changed everything from that point on. Now, what happened next, and, and help me advance, let me give you just a couple testimonies here. Finney, this is on the same day as his salvation. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love. No words could express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. Again, descriptive, not prescriptive. This is Finney's experience. Moody, uh, Moody is a Chicago guy. Already had a very large church when this happened, and uh, he was very successful, and he noticed there was two women in the front row that would pray for him while he was preaching. And he went down and said, Sisters, I can't help you notice that you're praying. What are you praying? And they said, Oh, Pastor, we're praying that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was a little offended, like, Well, I'm already successful, you know. But these women were praying that he would have an experience with God's love. And this that he describes happened in New York, when he was on a ministry trip, he was walking down Wall Street. When it's Occupy Wall Street, the Holy Spirit came. Oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom referred to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. One other example. Billy Graham. He heard a young English preacher named Stephen Olford, and he said, I don't know what that guy has, but I have to have it. And he went over to England, and he met with Olford in his hotel room and asked him to pray for him, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he began to laugh hilariously. He describes this in his autobiography. Laughing hilariously, he says, I'm filled, I'm filled, I'm filled. This is the turning point in my life. This will revolutionize my ministry. So uh, my final thoughts. this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's for every believer. It's not a reward. It's a gift. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That's us. And so when we pray, he loves to give good gifts to his children. When you ask, here's my counsel. Number one, We ask with expectancy without agenda. And we trust God in the timing of this process. Okay? Uh, Don't compare your experience with others. We always get into trouble when we compare. And, And here's what happens. The Spirit of God begins to touch somebody, and we look and go, how come it never happens for me like that? 
and we miss what he is doing in us. Or we see somebody experiencing God and we say, I hope that never happens to me, which also puts up walls whenever we compare. Okay, And so don't compare. Let, let God be God. And so let him touch people the way he's touching and don't have an agenda as to what it's not going to look like or is going to look like. Uh, focus on Jesus. Exalt Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. Uh, the Spirit is not in competition with Jesus. Jesus is not in competition with the Spirit. They are the same essence, power, and glory. The Trinity is there okay with each other. Okay, And allow your hunger for more of Him to grow without demanding instant answers. Okay. So, um, what I have found, friends, is that my Pentecostal students while they've had experiences, have, have not had much teaching. And when I give them teaching on the Holy Spirit, you cannot believe the relief that my Pentecostal students begin to feel because they leave behind the abuse and they begin to say, I want to function in the fullness of all that God has for me. My evangelical students frequently say what the people in Acts said. We didn't even hear there was a Holy Spirit. You know, we've been serving the Christianity of the Father, Son, and Holy Word for a long time and it, it releases them to experience what God has for them and uh, and and so what I would say to you is and we're going to talk about this tomorrow God's got more for you and so what is your position your position should be leaning in saying God I want everything you have for me that you would empower me that you would sanctify me that you would set me apart for your purposes amen won't you stand pray for you. Tonight we're going to talk about healing and, um, and it's, it's probably going to be a very different healing service than you've ever been in and um, we're going to pray for one another uh, and I'm, I'm going to uh, gently lead you through that ministry time and I would encourage you to bring your friends. Um, we're going to talk about healing in a way that's very non-offensive in that sense. Um, uh, you know, part of my role is to make people feel comfortable in the presence of God. And even if you have non-Christian friends, I've had non-Christians come to faith in this service that we're going to do tonight. Um, I, I guess the one caveat I would say is the only people I tend to offend would be religious people. And I feel like I have a calling to offend them in Jesus' name. Okay? Because those are the ones Jesus often offended too. And then tomorrow we're going to talk about God's got more for you. We're going to talk more about the filling of the Holy Spirit. So Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and wash over your people right now. Let them touch you. Some of you are really in that place of desperation. Some of you, like me, there may be some obstacles that you may not even be aware of that the Lord is now rooting out. He's preparing you to receive the love of the Father in a fresh way. Let Him. Just let Him touch you. Yes, God. More. More. Let the, let the weightiness of Your glory come. <laughs> yeah, He's here. Yes. Set him free, Jesus. Lord, where there's been abuse, where we've been hurt by 
spirit people, we forgive them. We, we refuse to live in disuse as a result of the abuse, but we ask that you teach us grace and maturity, health. We've got to have more God, more of you, more of you. Some of you right now, he's setting you apart in some areas. He's, he's calling you to trust him in the area of your finances. Some of you, he's calling you to trust him with your children. You've been controlling a little bit too much with the kids and, and you've got you to release them. Win the battle for their hearts, not the battle for behavior. Trust him. Come, Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just say, we will say yes to you. We will surrender. We will surrender. What I would encourage you to do right now in this moment is again, not compare what's happening in you with what's happening in others, but where you sense him speaking to you, just say, yes, Lord, I surrender. Yes, Lord, more, Lord. I love those two prayers together. Yes, Lord, more, Lord. Yes, Lord, more, Lord. So Lord, release us from fear. Release us from control. Now would you begin to pour out your spirit, release your gifts, release your fruit, release the manifestations of God, the the fruit of, of heaven, Lord. Let heaven come right now. Let healing begin to come. Let freedom begin to come. Father, begin to break off depression and anxiety right now. Let the captives feel the chains falling off in areas of their life, Lord. Come, Spirit of the living God. Fall fresh on your people. On a Saturday afternoon here, do it, God. Do your work. Do your work. I just, um, I just, I keep hearing the word calling. And, and right now, I believe the Lord is um, clarifying his call on some of you. He's letting you know you were born for more. Yeah, you were born for more. And, and I think one of the most important questions we can ask is, am I doing what I was born for? Am I doing what I was created for? Am I living out the destiny of God? And so, Father, I pray that you would clarify calling right now in people all across this place. 
He's awakening dreams that have died. And those dreams are coming to life. He's breathing life into them. So Lord, awaken the dreams that you birthed in a previous season that the enemy has tried to snuff out. And so we call forth the destiny of God, the dreams of God, the hope of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. It's okay, Lord, we bless what is going on with our sister. If there's somebody that can just lay hands on her and bless what God's doing in her, but we're also not going to be distracted from what you're doing in us either. And so we just receive, Lord. He knows us. He knows us. Lord, we ask now that you would begin to stir within us the empowerment for this next season. I'm, I'm sensing that there are challenges of leadership that some of you are taking on that you know you need more for it. And so come, Holy Spirit, empower us for the next level, for the next season, for what you're doing. Lord, we trust you that you will give us what we need for that moment that we won't have to wade through oatmeal, that there is a coming upon anointing of the Holy Spirit that is coming for that next moment. We trust you. We invite you. I don't know if Peter's here, if we could maybe just do some worship. I don't know if somebody's here that can maybe lead us. I just think we want to just host his presence well and then close out our time. But I just don't want to do it prematurely. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. So, Lord, we also, we also bless the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this church. And we do not despise any of your gifts. And we, we, we fan into flame the gifts of God in this church. And Lord, we confess we don't know how to use them all well. We need to mature in them. We need to develop them. We need to grow in them. Uh, we need the maturity of your holiness to come alongside the empowerment of your presence. But Lord, we're tired of living as practical cessationists who may believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not seeing it though. So come Holy Spirit, ignite. Ignite that which has been lying dormant. Lord, release tongues, release prophecy, release word of knowledge, release word of wisdom, release healing, Lord. Lord, tonight I, I pray for an anointing for healing, the ministry of healing tonight to be released, that Jesus would be the same yesterday, today, and forever tonight as we pray for people. Touch your people. We exalt you, Lord. We exalt you.